When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone. Today, second period, first narrative, chapter four. And now, our story. The signing of the will was a much shorter matter than I had anticipated. It was hurried over, to my thinking, in indecent haste. Samuel, the footman, was sent for to act as second witness, and the pen was put at once into my aunt's hand. I felt strongly urged to say a few appropriate words on this solemn occasion, but Mr. Bruff's manner convinced me that it was wisest to check the impulse while he was in the room. In less than two minutes it was all over, and Samuel, unbenefited by what I might have said, had gone downstairs again. Mr. Bruff folded up the will and then looked my way, apparently wondering whether I did or did not mean to leave him alone with my aunt. I had my mission of mercy to fulfill, and my bag of precious publications ready on my lap. He might as well have expected to move St. Paul's Cathedral by looking at it, as to move me. There was one merit about him, due no doubt to his worldly training, which I have no wish to deny. He was quick at seeing things. I appeared to produce almost the same impression on him which I had produced on the cabman. He, too, uttered a profane expression, and withdrew in a violent hurry, and left me mistress of the field. As soon as we were alone, my aunt reclined on the sofa, and then alluded, with some appearance of confusion, to the subject of her will. "'I hope you won't think yourself neglected, Drusilla,' she said. "'I mean to give you your little legacy, my dear, with my own hand.' Here was a golden opportunity. I seized it on the spot. In other words, I instantly opened my bag and took out the top publication. It proved to be an early edition, only the 25th, of the famous anonymous work, believed to be by precious Miss Bellows, entitled The Serpent at Home. The design of the book, with which the worldly reader may not be acquainted, is to show how the evil one lies in wait for us in all the most apparently innocent actions of our daily lives. The chapters best adapted to female perusal are... Satan in the hairbrush, Satan behind the looking glass, Satan under the tea table, Satan out of the window, and many others. Give your attention, dear aunt, to this precious book, and you will give me all I ask. With those words, I handed it to her open at a marked passage, one continuous burst of burning eloquence. Subject, Satan among the sofa cushions. Poor Lady Verinder, reclining thoughtlessly on her own sofa cushions, glanced at the book and handed it back to me, looking more confused than ever. "'I'm afraid, Drusilla,' she said. 
I must wait till I am a little better before I can read that. The doctor. The moment she mentioned the doctor's name, I knew it was coming. Over and over again in my past experience among my perishing fellow creatures, the members of the notoriously infidel profession of medicine had stepped between me and my mission of mercy, on the miserable pretense that the patient wanted quiet, and that the disturbing influence of all others which they most dreaded was the influence of Miss Clack and her books. Precisely the same blinded materialism, working treacherously behind my back, now sought to rob me of the only right of property that my property could claim, my right of spiritual property in my perishing aunt. The doctor tells me, my poor misguided relative went on, that I am not so well today. He forbids me to see any strangers, and he orders me, if I read at all, only to read the lightest and the most amusing books. Do nothing, Lady Verinder, to weary your head or to quicken your pulse. Those were his last words, Drusella, when he left me today. There was no help for it but to yield again, for the moment only, as before. Any open assertion of the infinitely superior importance of such a ministry as mine, compared with the ministry of the medical man, would only have provoked the doctor to practice on the human weakness of his patient, and to threaten to throw up the case. Happily, there are more ways than one of sowing the good seed." "'and few persons are better versed in those ways than myself. "'You might feel stronger, dear, in an hour or two, I said, "'or you might wake tomorrow morning with a sense of something wanting, "'and even this unpretending volume might be able to supply it. "'You will let me leave the book, aunt? "'The doctor can hardly object to that.' "'I slipped it under the sofa cushions, half in and half out, "'close by her handkerchief and her smelling bottle.' Every time her hand searched for either of these, it would touch the book, and sooner or later, who knows, the book might touch her. After making this arrangement, I thought it was wise to withdraw. Let me leave you to repose, dear aunt. I will call again tomorrow. I looked accidentally towards the window as I said that. It was full of flowers, in boxes and pots. Lady Verinder was extravagantly fond of these perishable treasures, and had a habit of rising every now and then, "'and going to look at them and smell them. "'A new idea flashed across my mind. "'Oh, may I take a flower?' I said, "'and got to the window unsuspected in that way. "'Instead of taking away a flower, "'I added one in the shape of another book from my bag, "'which I left to surprise my aunt "'among the geraniums and roses. "'The happy thought followed, "'Why not do the same for her poor dear "'in every other room that she enters?' I immediately said good-bye, and, crossing the hall, slipped into the library. Samuel, coming up to let me out, and supposing I had gone, went downstairs again. On the library table I noticed two of the amusing books which the infidel doctor had recommended. I instantly covered them from sight with two of my own precious publications. In the breakfast-room I found my aunt's favorite canary singing in his cage. She was always in the habit of feeding the bird herself. Some groundsel was strewed on a table which stood immediately under the cage. I put a book among the groundsel. In the drawing-room I found more cheering opportunities of emptying my bag. My aunt's favorite musical pieces were on the piano. I slipped in two more books among the music. I disposed of another in the back drawing-room, under some unfinished embroidery, which I knew to be of Lady Verinder's working. 
a third little room opened out of the back drawing-room, from which it was shut off by curtains instead of a door. My aunt's plain old-fashioned fan was on the chimney-piece. I opened my ninth book at a very special passage and put the fan in as a marker to keep the place. The question then came whether I should go higher still and try the bedroom floor, at the risk, undoubtedly, of being insulted, if the person with the cap ribbons happened to be in the upper regions of the house, and to find me out. Ah, what of that? It is a poor Christian that is afraid of being insulted. I went upstairs, prepared to bear anything. All was silent and solitary. It was the servant's tea-time, I suppose. My aunt's room was in front. The miniature of my late dear uncle, Sir John, hung on the wall opposite the bed. It seemed to smile at me. It seemed to say, "'Trusilla, deposit a book.' There were tables on either side of my aunt's bed. She was a bad sleeper, and wanted, or thought she wanted, many things at night. I put a book near the matches on one side, and a book under the box of chocolate drops on the other. Whether she wanted a light, or whether she wanted a drop, there was a precious publication to meet her eye, or to meet her hand, and to say with silent eloquence in either case, "'Come, try me, try me!' but one book was now left at the bottom of my bag, and but one apartment was still unexplored, the bathroom, which opened out of the bedroom. I peeped in, and the holy inner voice that never deceives whispered to me, "'You have met her, Drusilla, everywhere else. Meet her at the bath, and the work is done.' I observed a dressing-gown thrown across a chair. It had a pocket in it, and in that pocket I put my last book." Can words express my exquisite sense of duty done when I had slipped out of the house, unsuspected by any of them, and when I found myself in the street with my empty bag under my arm? Oh, my worldly friends, pursuing the phantom, pleasure, through the guilty mazes of dissipation, how easy it is to be happy, if you will only be good. When I folded up my things that night, when I reflected on the true riches which I had scattered with such a lavish hand from top to bottom of the house of my wealthy aunt, I declare I felt as free from all anxiety as if I'd been a child again. I was so light-hearted that I sang a verse of the evening hymn. I was so light-hearted that I fell asleep before I could sing another. Quite like a child again. Quite like a child again. So I passed that blissful night. On rising the next morning... How young I felt! I might add, how young I looked, if I were capable of dwelling on the concerns of my own perishable body. But I am not capable, and I add nothing. Towards luncheon time, not for the sake of the creature comforts, but for the certainty of finding dear aunt, I put on my bonnet to go to Montague Square. Just as I was ready, the maid at the lodgings in which I then lived looked in at the door and said, "'Lady Verinder's servant, to see Miss Clack. "'I occupied the parlour floor "'at that period of my residence in London. "'The front parlour was my sitting-room. "'Very small, very low in the ceiling, "'very poorly furnished, but, oh, so neat. "'I looked into the passage "'to see which of Lady Verinder's servants "'had asked for me. "'It was the young footman Samuel, "'a civil, fresh-coloured person "'with a teachable look and a very obliging manner.' I had always felt a spiritual interest in Samuel, and a wish to try him with a few serious words. On this occasion I invited him into my sitting-room. 
He came in with a large parcel under his arm. When he put the parcel down, it appeared to frighten him. "'My lady's love, miss, and I was to say that you would find a letter inside.' Having given that message, the fresh-coloured young footman surprised me by looking as if he would have liked to run away. I detained him to make a few kind inquiries. Could I see my aunt if I called him Montague Square? No, she had gone out for a drive. Miss Rachel had gone with her, and Mr. Abelwhite had taken a seat in the carriage too. Knowing how sadly dear Mr. Godfrey's charitable work was in arrear, I thought it odd that he should be going out driving, like an idle man. I stopped Samuel at the door, and made a few more kind inquiries. Miss Rachel was going to a ball that night, and Mr. Abelwhite had arranged to come to coffee, and go with her. There was a morning concert advertised for tomorrow, and Samuel was ordered to take places for a large party, including a place for Mr. Abelwhite. "'All the tickets may be gone, miss,' said this innocent youth, "'if I don't run and get them at once.' He ran as he said the words, and I found myself alone again, with some anxious thoughts to occupy me. We had a special meeting of the Mother's Small Clothes Conversation Society that night, summoned expressly with a view to obtaining Mr. Godfrey's advice and assistance. Instead of sustaining our sisterhood, under an overwhelming flow of trousers which quite prostrated our little community, he had arranged to take coffee in Montague Square and to go to a ball afterwards. The afternoon of the next day had been selected for the festival of the British Ladies' Servants' Sunday Sweetheart Supervision Society. Instead of being present, the life and soul of that struggling institution, he had engaged to make one of a party of worldlings at a morning concert. I asked myself, what did it mean? Alas, it meant that our Christian hero was to reveal himself to me in a new character, and to become associated in my mind with one of the most awful backslidings of modern times. To return, however, to the history of the passing day, on finding myself alone in my room, I naturally turned my attention to the parcel which appeared to have so strangely intimidated the fresh-colored young footman. Had my aunt sent me my promised legacy? And had it taken the form of cast-off clothes, or worn-out silver spoons, or unfashionable jewelry, or anything of that sort? Prepared to accept all, and to resent nothing, I opened the parcel, and what met my view? The twelve precious publications which I had scattered through the house on the previous day, all returned to me by the doctor's orders. Well, might the youthful Samuel shrink when he brought his parcel into my room. Well, he might run when he had performed his miserable errand. As to my aunt's letter, it simply amounted, poor soul, to this that she dare not disobey her medical man. What was to be done now? With my training and my principles, I never had a moment's doubt. Once self-supported by conscience, once embarked on a career of manifest usefulness, the true Christian never yields. Neither public nor private influences produce the slightest effect on us when we have once got our mission. Taxation may be the consequence of a mission. Riots may be the consequence of a mission. Wars may be the consequence of a mission. We go on with our work, irrespective of every human consideration which moves the world outside us. We are above reason. We are beyond ridicule. We see with nobody's eyes. We hear with nobody's ears. We feel with nobody's hearts but our own. Glorious, glorious privilege. And how is it earned? Ah, my friends, 
"'You may spare yourselves the useless inquiry. "'We are the only people who can earn it, "'for we are the only people who are always right. "'In the case of my misguided aunt, "'the form which pious perseverance was next to take "'revealed itself to me plainly enough. "'Preparation by clerical friends had failed, "'owing to Lady Verinder's own reluctance. "'Preparation by books had failed, "'owing to the doctor's infidel obstinacy. "'So be it. "'What was the next thing to try? "'The next thing to try was "'preparation by little notes. "'In other words, "'the books themselves having been sent back, "'select extracts from the books, "'copied by different hands, "'and all addressed as letters to my aunt, "'were some to be sent by post "'and some to be distributed about the house "'on the plan that I had adopted on the previous day. "'As letters they would excite no suspicion. "'As letters they would be opened, "'and, once opened, might be read. "'Some of them I wrote myself. "'Dear Aunt, may I ask your attention to a few lines? "'Dear Aunt, I was reading last night, "'and I chanced on the following passage. "'Other letters were written for me "'by my valued fellow-workers, "'the sisterhood at the mother's small clothes. "'Dear Madam, pardon the interest taken in you "'by a true, though humble friend. "'Dear Madam, may a serious person surprise you "'by saying a few cheering words?' Using these and other similar forms of courteous appeal, we reintroduced all my precious passages under a form which not even the doctor's watchful materialism could suspect. Before the shades of evening had closed around us, I had a dozen awakening letters for my aunt, instead of a dozen awakening books. Six I had made immediate arrangements for sending through the post, and six I kept in my pocket for personal distribution in the house the next day. Soon after two o'clock, I was again on the field of pious conflict, addressing more kind inquiries to Samuel at Lady Verinder's door. My aunt had had a bad night. She was again in the room in which I had witnessed her will, resting on the sofa and trying to get a little sleep. I said I would wait in the library, on the chance of seeing her. In the fervor of my zeal to distribute the letters, it never occurred to me to inquire about Rachel. The house was quiet, and it was past the hour at which the musical performance began. I took it for granted that she and her party of pleasure-seekers, Mr. Godfrey, alas, included, were all at the concert, and eagerly devoted myself to my good work, while time and opportunity were still at my own disposal. My aunt's correspondence of the morning, including the six awakening letters which I had posted overnight, were lying unopened on the library table. She had evidently not felt herself equal to dealing with a large mass of letters, and she might be daunted by the number of them if she entered the library later in the day. I put one of my second set of six letters on the chimney-piece by itself, leaving it to attract her curiosity, by means of its solitary position, apart from the rest. A second letter I put purposely on the floor in the breakfast-room. The first servant who went in after me would conclude that my aunt had dropped it, and would be specially careful to restore it to her. The field, thus sown on the basement story, I ran lightly upstairs to scatter my mercies next over the drawing-room floor. Just as I entered the front room, I heard a double knock at the street door, a soft, fluttering, considerate little knock. Before I could think of slipping back to the library, in which I was supposed to be waiting, the active young footman was in the hall, answering the door. It mattered little, as I thought, in my aunt's state of health, visitors in general were not admitted. To my horror and amazement, the performer of the soft little knock proved
proved to be an exception to general rules. Samuel's voice below me, after apparently answering some questions which I did not hear, said, unmistakably, "'Upstairs, if you please, sir.' The next moment I heard footsteps, a man's footsteps, approaching the drawing-room floor. Who could this favored male visitor possibly be? Almost as soon as I asked myself the question, the answer occurred to me. What could it be but the doctor? In the case of any other visitor, I should have allowed myself to be discovered in the drawing-room. There would have been nothing out of the common in my having got tired of the library and having gone upstairs for a change. But my own self-respect stood in the way of my meeting the person who had insulted me by sending back my books. I slipped into the little third room, which I have mentioned, as communicating with the back drawing-room, and dropped the curtains which closed the open doorway. If I only waited there for a minute or two, the usual result in such cases would take place. That is to say, the doctor would be conducted to his patient's room. I waited a minute or two, and more than a minute or two. I heard the visitor walking restlessly backwards and forwards. I also heard him talking to himself. I even thought I recognized the voice. Had I made a mistake? Was it not the doctor, but somebody else? Mr. Bruff, for instance. No, an unerring instinct told me it was not Mr. Bruff. Whoever he was, he was still talking to himself. I parted the heavy curtains, the least little morsel in the world, and listened. The words I heard were, I'll do it today, and the voice that spoke them, was Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite's. We'll return with Chapter 5, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 5. My hand dropped from the curtain, but don't suppose, oh, don't suppose, that the dreadful embarrassment of my situation was the uppermost idea in my mind. So fervent still was the sisterly interest I felt in Mr. Godfrey, that I never stopped to ask myself why he was not at the concert. No, I thought only of the words, those startling words, which had just fallen from his lips. He would do it today. He had said, in a tone of terrible resolution, he would do it today. What, oh, what would he do? Something even more deplorably unworthy of him than what he had done already? Would he apostatize from the faith? Would he abandon us at the mother's small clothes? Had we seen the last of his angelic smile in the committee room? Had we heard the last of his unrivaled eloquence at Exeter Hall? I was so wrought up by the bare idea of such awful eventualities that I believe I should have rushed from my place of concealment and implored him in the name of all the ladies' committees in London to explain himself, when I suddenly heard another voice in the room. It penetrated through the curtains. It was loud. It was bold. It was wanting in every female charm. It was the voice of Rachel Verinder. "'Why have you come up here, Godfrey?' she asked. "'Why didn't you go into the library?' He laughed softly and answered, "'Miss Clack is in the library.' "'Clack in the library?' She instantly seated herself on the ottoman in the back drawing-room. "'You're quite right, Godfrey. We had much better stop here.' I had been in a burning fever, a moment since, and in some doubt as to what to do next. I became extremely cold now, and felt no doubt whatever. To show myself, after what I had heard, was impossible. To retreat, except into the fireplace, was equally out of the question. 
a martyrdom was before me. In justice to myself, I noiselessly arranged the curtains so that I could both see and hear. And then I met my martyrdom with the spirit of a primitive Christian. "'Don't sit on the ottoman,' the young lady proceeded. "'Bring a chair, Godfrey. I like people to be opposite to me when I talk to them.' He took the nearest seat. It was a low chair. He was very tall, and many sizes too large for it. I never saw his legs to such disadvantage before. "'Well?' she went on. "'What did you say to them?' "'Just what you said, dear Rachel, to me.' "'That Mama was not at all well today, "'and that I didn't quite like leaving her to go to the concert?' "'Those were the words. "'They were grieved to lose you at the concert, "'but they quite understood. "'All sent their love, "'and all expressed a cheering belief "'that Lady Verinder's indisposition would soon pass away.' "'You don't think it's serious, do you, Godfrey?' "'Far from it. "'In a few days, I feel quite sure. "'All will be well again.' "'I think so, too. "'I was a little frightened at first, but I think so, too. "'It was very kind to go and make my excuses for me "'to people who are almost strangers to you. "'But why not have gone with them to the concert? "'It seems very hard that you should miss the music, too.' "'Don't say that, Rachel. "'If you only knew how much happier I am, here.' "'With you.' "'He clasped his hands and looked at her. "'In the position which he occupied, "'when he did that, he turned my way. "'Can words describe how I sickened "'when I noticed exactly the same pathetic expression on his face "'which had charmed me "'when he was pleading for destitute millions of his fellow creatures "'on the platform at Exeter Hall? "'It's hard to get over one's bad habits, Godfrey.' "'but do try to get over the habit of paying compliments. "'Do, to please me.' "'I never paid you a compliment, Rachel, in my life. "'Successful love may sometimes use the language of flattery, I admit, "'but hopeless love, dearest, always speaks the truth.' "'He drew his chair close and took her hand when he said, "'Hopeless love.' "'There was a momentary silence. "'He, who thrilled everybody, had doubtless thrilled her.' I thought I now understood the words which had dropped from him when he was alone in the drawing-room. I'll do it today. Alas! The most rigid propriety could hardly have failed to discover that he was doing it now. Have you forgotten what we agreed on, Godfrey, when you spoke to me in the country? We agreed that we were to be cousins, and nothing more. I break that agreement, Rachel, every time I see you. Then don't see me. "'Quite useless. I break the agreement every time I think of you. "'Oh, Rachel, how kindly you told me, only the other day, "'that my place in your estimation was a higher place than it had ever been yet. "'Am I mad to build the hopes I do on those dear words? "'Am I mad to dream of some future day when your heart may soften to me? "'Don't tell me so if I am. Leave me my delusion, dearest.' I must have that to cherish, and to comfort me, if I have nothing else. His voice trembled, and he put his white handkerchief to his eyes. Exeter Hall again! Nothing wanting to complete the parallel but the audience, the cheers, and the glass of water. Even her obdurate nature was touched. I saw her lean a little nearer to him. I heard a new tone of interest in her next words. Are you really sure, Godfrey? "'that you are so fond of me as that?' "'Sure. 
"'You know what I was, Rachel. "'Let me tell you what I am. "'I have lost every interest in life, "'but my interest in you. "'A transformation has come over me, "'which I can't account for myself. "'Would you believe it? "'My charitable business is an unendurable nuisance to me, "'and when I see a ladies' committee now, "'I wish myself at the uttermost ends of the earth.' If the annals of apostasy offer anything comparable to such a declaration as that, I can only say that the case in point is not producible from the stories of my reading. I thought of the mother's small clothes. I thought of the Sunday sweetheart supervision. I thought of the other societies, too numerous to mention, all built up on this man as on a tower of strength. I thought of the struggling female boards who, so to speak, "'drew the breath of their business life "'through the nostrils of Mr. Godfrey. "'Of that same Mr. Godfrey "'who had just reviled our good work "'as a nuisance, "'and just declared that he wished "'he was at the uttermost ends of the earth "'when he found himself in our company. "'My young female friends "'will feel encouraged to persevere "'when I mention that it tried "'even my discipline "'before I could devour "'my own righteous indignation in silence. "'At the same time, "'it is only justice to myself to add— "'that I didn't lose a syllable of the conversation Rachel was to speak next. "'You have made your confession,' she said. "'I wonder whether it would cure you of your unhappy attachment to me, if I made mine.' "'He started. I confess, I started too. "'He thought, and I thought, that she was about to divulge the mystery of the moonstone. "'Would you think, to look at me,' she went on, "'that I am the wretchedest girl living. "'It's true, Godfrey. "'What greater wretchedness can there be "'than to live degraded in your own estimation? "'That is my life now.' "'My dear Rachel, "'it's impossible you can have any reason "'to speak of yourself in that way. "'How do you know I have no reason? "'Can you ask me this question? "'I know it, because I know you. "'Your silence, dearest, "'has never lowered you in the estimation "'of your true friends.' The disappearance of your precious birthday gift may seem strange. Your unexplained connection with that event may seem stranger still. Are you speaking of the moonstone, Godfrey? I certainly thought that you referred... I refer to nothing of the sort. I can hear of the loss of the moonstone. Let who will speak of it, without feeling degraded in my own estimation. If the story of the diamond ever comes to light... "'It will be known that I accepted a dreadful responsibility. "'It will be known that I involved myself "'in the keeping of a miserable secret. "'But it will be as clear as the sun at noonday "'that I did nothing mean. "'You have misunderstood me, Godfrey. "'It's my fault for not speaking more plainly. "'Cost me what it may, I will be plainer now. "'Suppose you were not in love with me. "'Suppose you were in love with some other woman.' "'Yes?' "'Suppose you discovered that woman to be utterly unworthy of you. "'Suppose you were quite convinced that it was a disgrace to you "'to waste another thought on her. "'Suppose the bare idea of ever marrying such a person "'made your face burn only with thinking of it.' "'Yes.' "'And suppose, in spite of all that, you couldn't tear her from your heart. "'Suppose the feeling she had roused in you, "'in the time when you believed in her, was not a feeling to be hidden.' "'Suppose the love this wretch had inspired in you. "'Oh, how can I find words to say it in? "'How can I make a man understand that a feeling which horrifies me at myself 
can be a feeling that fascinates me at the same time. It's the breath of my life, Godfrey, and it's the poison that kills me, both in one. Go away. I must be out of my mind to talk as I'm talking now. No, you mustn't leave me. You mustn't carry away a wrong impression. I must say what is to be said in my own defense. Mind this. He doesn't know. He will never know what I've told you. I will never see him. I don't care what happens. I will never, never, never see him again. Don't ask me his name. Don't ask me any more. Let's change the subject. Are you doctor enough, Godfrey, to tell me why I feel as if I was stifling for want of breath? Is there a form of hysterics that burst into words instead of tears? I dare say. What does it matter? You will get over any trouble I've caused you easy enough now. I've dropped to my right place in your estimation, haven't I? Don't notice me. Don't pity me. For God's sake, go away. She turned round on a sudden and beat her hands wildly on the back of the ottoman. Her head dropped on the cushions and she burst out crying. Before I had time to feel shocked at this, I was horror-struck by an entirely unexpected proceeding on the part of Mr. Godfrey. Will it be credited that he fell on his knees at her feet? On both knees? I solemnly declare, may modesty mention that he put his arms round her next, and may reluctant admiration acknowledge that he electrified her with two words? Noble creature! No more than that. "'but he did it with one of the bursts "'which have made his fame as a public speaker. "'She sat, either quite thunderstruck "'or quite fascinated, I don't know which, "'without even making an effort "'to put his arms back where his arms ought to have been. "'As for me, my sense of propriety "'was completely bewildered. "'I was so painfully uncertain "'whether it was my first duty to close my eyes "'or to stop my ears that I did neither.' I attribute my being still able to hold the curtain in the right position for looking and listening entirely to suppressed hysterics. In suppressed hysterics, it is admitted, even by the doctors, that one must hold something. Yes, he said, with all the fascination of his evangelical voice and manner, you are a noble creature, a woman who can speak the truth, for the truth's own sake, a woman who will sacrifice her pride. "'rather than sacrifice an honest man who loves her, "'is the most priceless of all treasures. "'When such a woman marries, "'if her husband only wins her esteem and regard, "'he wins enough to ennoble his entire life. "'You have spoken, dearest, "'of your place in my estimation. "'Judge what that place is "'when I implore you on my knees "'to let the cure of your poor wounded heart "'be my care. "'Rachel, will you honor me? "'Will you bless me by being my wife?' "'By this time I should certainly have decided on stopping my ears "'if Rachel had not encouraged me to keep them open "'by answering him in the first sensible words "'that I had ever heard fall from her lips. "'Godfrey,' she said, "'you must be mad.' "'I never spoke more reasonably, dearest, "'in your interest as well as in mine. "'Look for a moment to the future.' Is your happiness to be sacrificed to a man who has never known how you feel towards him, and whom you are resolved never to see again? Is it not your duty to yourself to forget this ill-fated attachment? And is forgetfulness to be found in the life you are leading now? 
"'You have tried that life, and you're wearying of it already. "'Surround yourself with nobler interests than the wretched interests of the world. "'A heart that loves and honors you. "'A home whose peaceful claims and happy duties win gently on you day by day. "'Try the consolation, Rachel, which is to be found there. "'I don't ask for your love. "'I will be content with your affection and regard. "'Let the rest be left, confidently left, to your husband's devotion, and to time that heals even wounds as deep as yours. She began to yield already. Oh, what a bringing up she must have had! Oh, how differently I should have acted in her place! Don't tempt me, Godfrey, she said. I'm wretched enough and reckless enough as it is. Don't tempt me to be more wretched and more reckless still. One question, Rachel. Have you any personal objection to me? "'I? I always liked you. After what you've just said to me, I should be insensible indeed if I didn't respect and admire you as well.' "'Do you know many wives, my dear Rachel, who respect and admire their husbands? And yet they and their husbands get on very well. How many brides go to the altar with hearts that would bear inspection by the men who take them there? And yet it doesn't end unhappily. Somehow or other the nuptial establishment jogs on.' The truth is that women try marriage as a refuge, far more numerously than they're willing to admit, and what is more, they find that marriage has justified their confidence in it. Look at your own case once again. At your age, and with your attractions, is it possible for you to sentence yourself to a single life? Trust my knowledge of the world. Nothing is less possible. It is merely a question of time. You may marry some other man, some years hence, "'Or you may marry the man, dearest, who is now at your feet, "'and who prizes your respect and admiration "'above the love of any other woman on the face of the earth.' "'Gently, Godfrey, you're putting something into my head "'which I never thought of before. "'You are tempting me with a new prospect "'when all my other prospects are closed before me. "'I tell you again, I am miserable enough and desperate enough, "'if you say another word, to marry you on your own terms. "'Take the warning and go.' "'I won't even rise from my knees until you've said yes.' "'If I say yes, you will repent, and I shall repent, when it's too late.' "'We shall both bless the day, darling, when I pressed, and when you yielded. "'Do you feel as confidently as you speak?' "'You shall judge for yourself. I speak from what I have seen in my own family. "'Tell me what you think of our household at prison hall. "'Do my father and mother live unhappily together?' "'Far from it.' "'so far as I can see. "'When my mother was a girl, Rachel, "'it is no secret in the family, "'she had loved as you love. "'She had given her heart to a man "'who was unworthy of her. "'She married my father, respecting him, "'admiring him, but nothing more. "'Your own eyes have seen the result. "'Is there no encouragement in it "'for you and for me? "'You won't hurry me, Godfrey? "'My time shall be yours. "'You won't ask me for more than I can give?' "'My angel, I only ask you to give me yourself. "'Take me.' "'In those two words, she accepted him. "'He had another burst, a burst of unholy rapture this time. "'He drew her nearer and nearer to him till her face touched his, "'and then, no, I really cannot prevail upon myself "'to carry this shocking disclosure any farther. "'Let me only say that I tried to close my eyes before it happened "'and that I was just one moment too late.' 
I had calculated, you see, on her resisting. She submitted. To every right-feeling person of my own sex, volumes could say no more. Even my innocence in such matters began to see its way to the end of the interview now. They understood each other so thoroughly by this time that I fully expected to see them walk off together, arm in arm, to be married. There appeared, however, judging by Mr. Godfrey's next words, to be one more trifling formality which was necessary to observe. He seated himself, unforbidden this time, on the ottoman by her side. "'Shall I speak to your dear mother?' he asked. "'Or will you?' She declined both alternatives. "'Let my mother hear nothing from either of us until she is better. I wish it to be kept a secret for the present, Godfrey. Go now, and come back this evening. We've been here alone together quite long enough.' She rose, and in rising, looked for the first time towards the little room in which my martyrdom was going on. "'Who has drawn those curtains?' she exclaimed. "'The room is close enough, as it is, without keeping the air out of it in that way.' She advanced to the curtains. At the moment when she laid her hand on them, at the moment when the discovery of me appeared to be quite inevitable, the voice of the fresh-colored young footman on the stairs suddenly suspended any further proceedings on her side or on mine. It was unmistakably the voice of a man in great alarm. "'Miss Rachel!' he called out. "'Where are you, Miss Rachel?' She sprang back from the curtains and ran to the door. The footman came just inside the room. His ruddy color was all gone. He said, "'Please to come downstairs, miss. My lady has fainted, and we can't bring her to again.' In a moment more I was alone, and free to go downstairs in my turn, quite unobserved. Mr. Godfrey passed me in the hall, hurrying out to fetch the doctor. "'Go in and help them,' he said, pointing to the room." I found Rachel on her knees by the sofa, with her mother's head on her bosom. One look at my aunt's face, knowing what I knew, was enough to warn me of the dreadful truth. I kept my thoughts to myself till the doctor came in. It was not long before he arrived. He began by sending Rachel out of the room, and then he told the rest of us that Lady Berender was no more. Serious persons, in search of proofs of hardened skepticism, may be interested in hearing that he showed no signs of remorse when he looked at me. At a later hour, I peeped into the breakfast room and the library. My aunt had died without opening one of the letters which I had addressed to her. I was so shocked at this that it never occurred to me, until some days afterward, that she had also died without giving me my little legacy. Thanks for joining us for the Moonstone as we continue the mystery. We'll return at noon Eastern time next Sunday with more of the Moonstone. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.